0: The following program is sponsored by Grant Stern.
1: This is the Only in Miami show. Sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.MorningSignMortgage.com. That's www.MorningSignMortgage.com.
2: This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, Podcasts, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we've got a great show planned for you tonight, folks. We've got a very exciting lineup of guests who are calling in or visiting the studio from the Miami Book Fair International All of them will be appearing later this month between November 15th through the 22nd at the Miami Book Fair International. It's really the biggest and best edition of it yet, and it's been going on for many years. It's going to be in downtown Miami on the Wolfson campus of Miami-Dade College. And for you tonight on the show, we have the illustrious following guests. We have... Leonard Pitts, who is on hold and going to be speaking with us for the first half of the 7 o'clock hour. He is a longtime columnist and Pulitzer Prize winner for commentary at the Miami Herald, and he has a book coming out as well. Then later on in the 7 o'clock hour, we're going to hear from Ken Russell. He's the District 2 Commission candidate in the city of Miami. There's been a lot of discussion about that and we're going to talk about that in our editorial at the beginning of the show as well. We've got Art Friedrich who is going to come into the studio. He is part of the Urban Oasis Project and Art is going to be at the book fair as well. Uh, that is, a, He's a dedicated food activist so that should be a lot of fun uh, for those foodies out there. And then we have the programming director of Reading Queer, Jose Villar. Uh, Jose is going to be coming into the studio at the top of the 8 o'clock hour. And that is a reading queer literary festival that is going to be presented inside of the book fair. It's sponsored by the Knight Foundation. And that is going to be a lot of fun to hear about. Then in the rest of the 8 o'clock hour, we have one of the co-founders of Credit.com. His name is Adam Levine. And Adam is going to be calling in to talk about his book, Swiped. How to Protect Yourself in a World Full of Scammers, Fishers, and Identity Thieves. And we're going to finish it all off. I know it's a, a big lineup, and and uh, we're going to finish it all off with MJ Fryer, uh, Fever, uh, Jessica Fever. She's a, a Haitian author. She's written quite a few books, and she's going to be joining us live in studio at 830 so if you got a couple of minutes to listen, well, this is the part of the time, uh, the show where I get a couple of minutes to speak to you, the audience, directly about issues of importance that are happening in the city of Miami or beyond and that impact everybody. And very much has been made of the city of Miami District 2 commission race. Uh, it's a very important race because the second district in the city of Miami covers 80% of the waterfront territory upwards of 70% of the city of Miami's tax base, and the most high-profile part of the city, our skyline. It stretches from Coconut Grove all the way north through Brickle and downtown, Midtown, Edgewater, and uh, Bay Point, and also includes the Morningside neighborhood, for which our sponsor Morningside Mortgage is named. The District 2 commission race has been dramatic, and the conclusion... Is not here yet. Um, I haven't had a lot of time to personally review the city attorney's ruling today. Uh, It came out about two hours ago. But as I understand it, there will be an election on November 17th, a runoff election, and the votes will count. Uh, There's nothing I saw in that uh, opinion that discussed what to do with votes for a candidate who doesn't wish to stand for a runoff. Uh, Once that candidate has been entered in the runoff, there's an election, and that is mandatory. So for all of you who have been listening to the show, who listen to our interviews with the many candidates from the District 2 commission race, uh, it's not over yet. One week from this Tuesday, that is November 17th, Tuesday, November 17th, there will be a runoff election just in Miami's District 2. Those neighborhoods that are on the east side of Miami from Coconut Grove all the way north to Morningside that are east of, I want to say, uh, northeast 2nd Avenue as or, or Miami Avenue as you run north uh, in the city, and they are east of US-1 and I-95 as you run into downtown and go further south for the most part. Uh, you should know if you live in District 2 if you voted uh, uh, last week, then you've got to vote again next week In this commission race, there's been a lot of confusion. Uh, One of the candidates uh, wrote a very much hyped concession letter um, to Ken Russell, who garnered 41% of the vote. And Ken will be joining us later on the program to discuss all of it. But we're going to take a very short break and we'll be right back with Leonard Pitts. This is the only in Miami show. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Bump the tweeters in the speakers, turn the bass line up. If you're dosing, what's your potion? It's swelling up your emotions. Roller coast and dance promotion. She's ego tripping. You're boasting. Focus, focus.
2: Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, Podcasts, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Leonard Pitts on the line. Leonard, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
0: It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: So, Leonard, tell our audience a little bit about your writing career with the Miami Herald because I think that most people in town who read the Herald, uh, have read your columns, but not everybody out there in radio land is reading the Herald, I guess. (laughs) So let's no,
0: no, let's introduce you
2: to a new audience. People that are stuck in nightmare traffic.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, First of all, they have my sympathies. Um, I started with the Miami Herald in uh, 91, in April of 91, as their pop music critic. And uh, at that time, I'd been doing pop music for 15 years total. Uh, And about uh, three, four more years, I just had enough. I told them if they sent me to do another New Kids on the Block interview or, you know, to write another Milli Vanilli story, I couldn't be responsible for my actions (laughs) afterward. And they... Yeah, they were kind enough to uh, to you know take me off the beat and to uh allow me to write the column uh, to start the column that I do now which is the general interest column essentially on social issues um and you know the, the, what they call the politics of the human condition which is the term, a term a lovely vague term that I that I that I really kind of like
2: well yeah i mean leaving the the pop culture beat was the start of something bigger for you, right? Yeah,
0: I mean, I still, yeah I still, you know, write about pop culture occasionally, but I, I'm not required to scan the charts and see how, <laughs> oh, I don't know, Nicki Minaj is, you know, what, what's her latest, uh, you know, beef? What, what, is, what is she feeling? Or what is uh, Kanye or any of rest. You, you can see I'm having trouble even coming up with modern names anymore. That tells you how far removed I am from popular music at this point.
2: Yes, Kanye is old news.
0: Yes, yeah, there you go. So exactly. there you go
2: <laughs> So. <laughs> So, um, I mean, a lot of what you comment on is, is popular, but it's in the news. So uh, tell our audience about some of your most recent columns, like for the Miami Herald. Just a few Well, examples. I just wrote a
0: piece on uh, this young um, man, uh, this boy actually, Darnell, Monday the 2nd, who was uh, injured, uh, could have been fatal uh, by, you know, playing with his father's gun. Right. Uh And, you know, just the fact that, you know, what's a three-year-old boy... Doing having uh, you know access to a you know to a to a loaded Smith West, and Wesson, he found it in his father's drawer, and uh, you know the the fact that uh, you know we seem to have guns. A lot of us seem to have guns around because we we fear that you know the intruder is going to kick in the door. But it's actually stati- statistically more likely than simply the intruder kicking in the door and we have to get the gun. You know one of our kids is going to get the gun, and uh, you know somebody's going to end up shot as, as a result of it. As a matter of fact. It's, the statistic that I use, which really kind of still shocks me, is this whole thing that came from the Washington Post, which said that toddlers in this country are shooting people now at a rate of one a uh, one a week, which is just an appalling statistic.
2: That that is appalling. So so fifty Americans are losing their lives to toddlers accidentally discharging they Not all the losing their lives, but toddlers are shooting other people or shot.
0: themselves at the rate of one a week so far this year.
2: That's that's pretty shocking. I don't think that's what yeah. gun owners intend when they buy these guns. I mean, how do we how do we find a solution when we have political gridlock in Congress?
0: Well, I think first we've got to resolve the uh, the gridlock. We have to understand that, you know, we're never going to be a country without guns. And maybe there's no reason, you know, without guns in, in, in private hands. And maybe there's no reason that we should be. One of the other things that statistics that, that really kind of took me aback a too long ago was... Uh, reading that the uh, nation of Canada has 10 million guns, which, you know, is is a pittance compared to the 300-some million I think we have. It's still 10 million is nothing to sneeze at. And they only had, uh, I think, 168 gun deaths last year, which is just insane. So obviously it is possible to have the right to bear arms and yet not have these insane uh, homicide rates that we have in this country. You know, Canada had... uh, you know, Canada had is about half, uh, give or take, what, what Chicago had last year. That's insane.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it doesn't—but it still doesn't illuminate why we have so many more. I mean, the gun well, ownership there's, rate there's, is very high in Canada. I think there's a lot of—I'm sorry, Going the, the gun ownership rate is very high in Canada, but the murder rate is lower, right?
0: Right. I, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of fear uh, in this country. And I think it is. Uh, I think it's sort of in our national DNA, and I think it's certainly fanned, particularly by electronic media. This idea that somebody's always coming to get us, or somebody wants what we've got, or somebody wants our lives, or so, or whatever. I think you, you know, that that's that's part of of who and what, who we are and what we've been. And I think that sometimes it plays out in really tragic ways. Like, you know, again, this this, this little boy finding access to his father's gun.
2: Well, I mean, isn't a bigger problem uh, for theft in America identity theft or digital theft these days? Heck, IRS uh, fraud.
0: Yeah, I haven't run the numbers, but I I wouldn't be surprised if that's true. You know, I mean, violent crime in this country is is down, you know, even though you hear about, you know, the uptick in Chicago and and other major cities. Violent crime in this country is down to historic lows over the last, let's say, 25 years. Uh, we're not seeing the crime rates that we saw in the, in the 80s. Your life, your property, and your person, as, as I wrote in that column, are safer now than they've been in years, but yet we don't feel safe.
2: Uh, I was yeah, here in Miami during them. those years. I didn't feel safe then. Hmm. I feel perfectly safe now. That's a, you feel perfectly safe now? Perfectly safe. I'm telling you. It is just not yeah, like well. the old Miami. Thank goodness. I think
0: you're you're probably you know an anomaly because I think a lot of people, uh, at least a lot of people that I've encountered, don't feel necessarily safe. You know, one man told me, "Ignore the statistics, talk to people." I don't even I don't even know what that means. In other words, <laughs> ignore the fact, deal with how we feel, <laughs> and you know h- how you feel should stem should have some basis to the actual facts.
2: Well, if you think of it this way, uh, the phrase you hear most from uh, police officers who feel very threatened for their lives all the time. Is that they were in fear for their life, um, but yeah. then the standard is that you have to judge what a reasonable person fear for their life. So you have to judge the feelings of somebody who's being logical, reasonable. <laughs> it's a little yeah, it's a little yeah. odd when you put it that way. I think, I think way. there's,
0: I think that, that not to say that you know some officers have not been a legitimate fear for their their safety, but I also think there's a there's a a, a tendency to use that to politi- to uh, to legal advantage. I once saw a police officer being recorded during a traffic stop by a woman who was standing in her front yard, back on her front porch, and the police officer prefaced to, uh, in, in, to preface his arrest of her, and you could, you could clearly tell he was doing this with an eye toward this is going to be played in court, in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a few weeks. He said, ma'am, I do not feel safe with you pointing that camera at me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, those scary cameras.
0: Exactly. Exactly. She's pointing herself on, oh, ma'am. I don't. I'm uncomfortable. I do not feel safe that you are pointing it. So this is now. He's laid down the legal. The legal. You know, uh, precedent uh, here. He's laid down. You know, the, the, his the, testimony the, uh, in structures. court. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. For him to go do whatever it is he feels he needs to do. And people are getting arrested and, you know, and whatever for, for aiming cameras at police officers. So, you know. Yeah. But no.
2: I mean, what's your opinion on people getting arrested for recording the police? You live in Baltimore these days, right?
0: I lived uh, just south of Baltimore closer to d c actually but yeah i you know I think that that's insane. Uh, and i I did write a column about that recently. Here's the thing we are you know in, in this country, you're under surveillance pretty much from the moment that you that you walk out of your front door, you're on the surveillance camera at whatever the business or establishment is that you visit uh the um the red light cameras looking at you, you know sure. the uh, speeding cameras looking at you. And the police are now driving around town with these uh, scanners that read your license plate and check it against uh, wants and warrants.
2: Sure, so that's right. On
0: camera. So oh yeah, they. The should,
2: they just the drive by. The police
0: should somehow be exempt is ridiculous.
2: Well, uh, more than that, there's a constitutional right. Um, are you familiar with the, the struggles that uh, citizens of Baltimore have had with their police in trying to film?
0: I've seen some of that. I know that a man, not a, not so much in Baltimore, but a Maryland man was arrested a few years ago for filming his own traffic stop.
2: Okay. No, it's it's happening all over the country. It's a, a big problem.
0: Yeah, but the thing is, if, you, if you're if you doing your job to the standard that you're supposed to be and in, 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 in that you say you're doing, then you would welcome a camera because the camera can only prove your point. The camera's on your side. If you're doing your job, the camera's on your side. So the very fact that so many police don't want the cameras... You know, watching them is not does not bode well. Does not make you say, "Okay, l- l- let me trust these folks."
2: Well, I, 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 re- I remember that column that you were mentioning, and and I pulled it up. It's called "We Don't Want to Watch Police, but We Have to." Mm.
3: Yeah,
2: and and I think that's very telling. That you know, it's really an idea that's spreading. But it, besides the, the biggest incidents, um, like the the incident in South Carolina. Do you think that it's like just the national news that's spreading this idea that we should be recording the police, or do you think it's really being driven from a grassroots perspective that people are seeing these incidents in, in, in their own homes and their neighborhoods, et cetera?
0: It's probably a little bit of both. Um, I believe that you know police brutality is now on the national media uh, radar, so they're more apt to pick up and give give you know more intense play. The episodes of that, but I also believe that frankly people are pulling out their their cell phone cameras a lot more when they see something that they think might be not kosher about to about to go down. And it's not just cell phone cameras for that matter; it's dash cams. Uh, there was a there's That's a right. dash cam video of a police officer in Delaware telling a man to get down, and then as the man is getting down, kicking him in the face for no for no apparent reason. And the thing that I, the thing that always kills me is if you know you're on camera, usually you you uh, behave better.
2: Typically. I mean, you would
0: think that would just that would just make logical
2: sense. Well, you would hope, but that doesn't. Yeah, that that doesn't guarantee anything, does it?
0: If I'm going to shoplift and I look up and I'm in the store and I see cameras watching me, I'll move on to another store. That would just seem to make sense to me, you know. Uh, but this whole idea that you know you can do things and do them on camera and then still expect you know to, to somehow get away with it—it it sort of it sort of reeks of imp- of a sense of impunity which is uh, it's
2: scary to me. Well, we see all sorts of incidents that are caught on camera that, that filter through the news. Some of them are, you know, fights or disturbances or, or oddities. But why do you think we see such a high percentage of police incidents uh, versus just regular, everyday Meshuggahna <laughs> incidents? Like uh, <laughs> Meshuggahna. I mean, there's no better way <laughs> of putting it, like that incident on yeah. South Beach with the ketchup bottle.
0: <laughs> yeah i think that when you see two idiots fighting in a parking lot i mean it's 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 visceral and it's interesting and it's too but it's but when you break it down it's just two idiots fighting in a parking lot or or, or whatever but when you see a police officer doing it what you've got is not just you know the fight or the the, the activity or whatever it is but you've also got the uh, the specter of somebody essentially betraying public trust you've got the possibility of that and i think that Elevated it to a whole different level. If it's just you and me and we're acting foolish on camera, that's one thing. But if it's you and me and a police officer and a police officer acting foolish on camera, then, you know, how can we trust this? This is a guy with a gun, <laughs> a badge, and arrest powers. So you'd want them to have, you want him or her to have, you know, better, better judgment than, than sometimes what we see on camera.
2: Well, we're going to take a very short break, Leonard, and we'll be right back. We're going to discuss the book, Grant Park. This is the Only in Miami show... Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show and I'm your host Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Leonard Pitts, the Pulitzer winning columnist from the Miami Herald. Leonard, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. So tell our audience a little bit about Grant Park, which is your new book on black and white race relations in America.
0: I think you just did. Um, <laughs> Grant Park is a novel about uh, race and disillusionment. Uh, the, the two main characters are an African-American journalist and, uh, and his editor is a white guy. And uh, it follows them from their days of, uh, you know, militancy on the one hand and, and just sort of optimism and, 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 and faith in terms of the, the battle for, for civil rights in the 1960s to the uh, eve of the uh, 2008 election when they are both, for, for different reasons, just very disillusioned and, and kind of uh, kind of burnt out uh, on the hope that we're going to ever get it together with regard to race. It's sort of bracketed by the um, assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in 1968 and, of course, the election of Barack Obama's first African-American president 40 years later in 2008.
2: So, did Barack Obama's election solve the problem of race in the United States?
0: <laughs> Barack Obama's election uh, revealed and highlighted the problem of race in the United States. It's 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 an amazing uh, and fascinating paradox. It's you know the very fact that an African American man can be president speaks speaks greatly uh, speaks well of us and and the progress that we've made. But the fact that we you know spent what three four five years whatever it is debating. Whether or not that man was born in the United States. In <laughs> fact, that, you know. And that, that guy is the, the most popular start.
2: candidate for president on the Republican side this year, too.
0: Exactly. And suddenly we don't hear that. We have not heard that about uh, about Texas. We didn't hear it about uh, John McCain. who was born in the Panama Canal. Somebody knows some, some mystery about, the, about Barack Obama's birthplace. The very fact that that was, was, was such a big deal, and the fact that, you know, some of the invective that we've heard of, uh, toward the president. Uh, really speaks to the uh, to the progress that we haven't made.
2: Yeah, and and the irony is that Trump couldn't produce his own birth certificate either. <laughs>
0: I haven't heard that really.
2: Yeah, it was destroyed in a fire. <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I read that a while back. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you, one of your recent columns is entitled "Why Black Lives Matter Resonates." Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Um, okay. I mean, that's uh, you know, it's a whole column about it, but. A lot of people say a lot of things. There's a lot of rhetoric flying around on the internet. But what's so important about Black Lives Matter? What is the main importance in your opinion? The
0: main opinion? importance is that, and the reason that, the, that an organization with that name or a movement with that name is necessary is because historically in this country we have acted as if Black Lives didn't matter. Uh, We have shown this in any number of ways, beginning with our founding document, which you know in which Black lives were valued at I think it's uh, three-fifths, three-fifths of other lives. Black lives and the lives of natives were were valued at three-fifths of other lives, and from that day till till this day right now, we've always acted as if African American lives mattered uh, mattered less. You know, if you. Uh, If you look at death penalty statistics, you're much more likely, significantly more likely to get the death penalty if you kill a white person than than an African-American person. If somebody doesn't support the death penalty, I wish wish nobody got it. But the very fact that there's such a racial stratification, there speaks volumes in in terms of what we value and and what we don't.
2: Well, why do police supporters and those who oppose the Black Lives Matter movement uh, feel so strongly that saying Black Lives Matter somehow denies them?
0: Well, I think that what happens when you have, you know, those kind of complaints is that people are people are looking for anything that they can find to sort of to to, to discredit them and really not have to deal with the issue that a Black Lives Matter raises. That's the main thing. You, you, you anything that you can do to change the subject, to not have to deal with 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 the complaint that they are making on it, on its own merits is is what you do. It, and it reaches Sort of heights or maybe depths is a better word of ludicrousness uh, in this country where you've got to sit and explain that you know because I say black lives matter, doesn't believe that I doesn't mean that I believe all lives don't matter. you know but it, and it's 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 like you know you've got to explain basic English language construction to people, but I understand it because if if you've invested yourself in a in a notion that we have overcome and everything is is hunky-dory, uh, then uh, to deal with something that, that says no, wait a minute, we've we still got a lot of work to do. That requires you, if you if you conceive, consider yourself a moral person, that requires you to take some action. That requires you to care. That requires you to get up off your backside. And I think a lot of us, frankly, would rather do anything but. Therefore, ergo, Black Lives Matter, you know, is is something other than what it is in their in their formulations.
2: Well, well, why is that so offensive on its face that somebody might have to care about somebody they? don't necessarily know about why does that provoke people so much
0: because it speaks to what to, it speaks to what we are as a country again okay. a lot of people are invested in the you know racism is an ugly thing and nobody wants to think of themselves as being beneficiary of that system or of participating in that system or or having anything to do with that system and when you are shown that that system indeed does exist and it does benefit certain people to the detriment of other people, then what happens is you've got to you've basically got to kill the messenger. Well,
2: why, and that's, but but why did here. but why were these incidents so underreported by the media, say ten years ago? Because uh, this kind of behavior doesn't just happen overnight.
0: No, it's not new. Uh, what ha- what what happened ten years ago is frankly there weren't any uh, cell phone cameras. You know there would, and you saw what happened with um, his name was George Halliday, the uh, pu- the um, plumber who uh, filmed Rodney King. Sure. Yeah, that was sort of the first of this, this, this wave of, of videos demonstrating in, in, in pretty sharp detail and pretty visceral detail what African Americans have been complaining about for uh, for many years. and even at that you know people found ways to ignore it and to make it what it is. And it's happening again with, uh, you know, in cases where there are video, in cases where there isn't video, in cases with Oscar Grant, with uh, with Eric Garner, with uh, with all these other cases, you know, where there is or isn't video. The one that I haven't seen anyone yet be able to uh, to uh, deny is the uh, shooting of Walter Scott in the back. That's so brutal and so, you know, obvious that, you know, people really, they're, they're not left with a lot to say. But, but I, I have to disagree video, with they you. Do. They
2: did deny it before the video came out. The, the, police the police report said quite the opposite of what happened yeah. in the video. Yeah.
0: They yeah. did think deny it. I the officer did, but I'm talking about the, the people, you know, American oh, people in sure.
2: general. No, yeah, I I agree. After the video yeah. came out, nobody denied it. But it's it's yeah. kind of striking that the police denied it so vehemently they took the officer at his word. Um, there was somebody else who showed up on the scene later, and, and nobody mentioned that he was shot in the back while he was running away. <laughs>
0: But see the officer will always be taken at his word and as the, as the you know African American witness or, or or victim, you know you're always considered you're always going to be considered suspect uh, in terms of in terms of what you testify. If what you testify contradicts with, with what the officer officer says. And you know it's bad enough when there's no independent evidence, but when there's video footage, you know clearly documenting who's telling the truth and who's not, it gets a little bit frustrating. To, uh, to, to hear it still being denied. I told you a moment ago about the police officer who kicked the man in the face in Delaware uh, as the man was obeying a command to get down on the ground. Took, I think two grand juries refused to indict that man. That's right. Two grand juries, refused, and if you look at the video, nothing could be clearer.
2: Oh, there's a story uh, we reported on PhotographyIsNotACrime.com today about a police officer who was acquitted of murder charges for tasing and then shooting an unarmed man wearing a jacket, and she claimed that she was afraid he was going to reach into his uh, jacket when he was being, like, you know, zapped with electricity, and withdraw a gun. And the jury bought it, and they acquitted him, or the, her, excuse me, they acquitted her, the, the police officer who killed the uh, older white gentleman. Yeah, we're,
0: we're, we're very eager to accord to court, police the benefit of the doubt, which is one thing, but we accord them the benefit even when there's little or no doubt.
2: So as a country, how do we find a way to move past that? And what do you think we need to do to make changes so that this subsides, this wave of violence by police officers against citizens, the the wave of arrests for recording,
4: um, you know,
0: I don't know if there's a wave of violence. Like I said, I don't know if there's a new wave. I think that it's you know people you know being more sensitized to it right now. But I think that as a country, with this and other issues, we frankly got to quit being some moral cowards, which is a, a, a term that I've used a lot and I find myself using a lot in the column in the last few years. You know, we we we've got to have the the moral gumption to see what what is there right in front of us, to to, to own what we know, and then to get up off our backsides and do something about it. One of the things I've been saying on the book tour is that you know when you hear African Americans, uh, you know you, you hear this outcry from African Americans, you know, almost forty million African Americans in this country, and you hear this outcry, lamenting, you know, the, the fact that we are subject to a different kind of justice than other people in this country. How dare you, you know, assume that? Well, they're they're you know they're making it all or they're all making it up, or they're crying for nothing, or they're crying because, and, and, and I believe it was. Jeb Bush's famous formulation: They they want to get uh, stuff. They want to get free stuff. You know. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> Romney's thing. People free stuff. Don't holler for, for no reason. People holler because they're in pain.
2: Well, Leonard, I really appreciate you calling into the program. Tell our audience a little bit about where they can find you online, on Twitter, um, your website, and where they can find the book Grant Park.
0: You can find me on Twitter at uh, at LeonardPitts1. You can find the uh, column at uh, MiamiHerald.com. You can find me at LeonardPittsJr.com, and the book is available, and as you said, at Amazon, at, at Books and Books in the Gables, uh, and uh, you know, at, as I say, at fine booksellers near you.
2: At very fine booksellers near you, and yeah. for everybody out there in our audience, Leonard has two Twitter accounts. There's Leonard P- Leonard Pitts Jr. and Leonard Pitts One.
0: Actually, jr One is the only
2: one that I. <laughs> if there's another, I don't know anything about it. Somebody may be doing something under my name. Yeah, there's there's just a Miami Herald one. Uh, oh, the Herald one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the Herald. Okay. One. Well, uh, I really appreciate it, and we're going to see you at the book fair. You're actually going to be at two different uh, two different sessions, right? So right here, yeah. So uh, you'll be able to see Leonard uh, Saturday, November twenty first at three thirty p.m. The panel is called. Havana and Haiti Reshaping the New Americas and the World and then Sunday, November 22nd at 5pm, Race in America in Fiction and Non-Fiction Well, pleasure, again, Leonard thanks for coming on the program My pleasure, thanks for having me And we'll be right back This is the Only in Miami show
1: Mama always said we were royalty, she even said it's staring in the face of poverty, is that insanity or vanity, I think it's nothing but the power of the mind, believe, she put it in me, because I live on my dreams, I get my fantasies wings, one day I'm gonna be king, I'm gonna make that woman so proud of a son, I know you heard about change, it's gonna change come, gonna one come. question, will you be there, will you be there, I'll be there with my hands held high in the air, like a champion. Never fold my cards Focus my mind and don't take my eyes Off the prize Cause life is a blink of an eye You're here then you're gone Off to the other side My time is a gift and I use it I spend every day making beautiful music But you don't have to hold the tune To serenade a room Just to highlight noon Even in the gloom Darkest clouds never block the sun Just rise above and you're already won. No obstacle can't be overcome If you think that you can Then it's already done
2: oh welcome back this is the only in miami show and i'm your host grant stern you can find me on twitter at grant stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co itunes podcast SoundCloud, and a whole lot more check it out at onlyinmiami.co and we're here with art friedrich he is the president of the urban oasis project and will be at the miami book fair international uh From the 15th through the 22nd.
4: Yeah, we'll be there from
2: Thursday until Sunday. From Thursday until Sunday. And he's going to be setting up a farmer's market outside of the swamp.
4: Yeah, thanks, Grant. It's great to be here. Uh, My pleasure to have you. Bringing a mini farmer's market, uh, Urban Oasis Project. We organize a bunch of farmer's markets around town. We did one at the book fair last year. And we have a farm called Verde Community Farm and Market down in Homestead. 22 acres, certified organic, got a full farm-to-fork cafe called the Verde Cafe. It's all part of the Verde Gardens community, which is a permanent assisted housing community in partnership with the Homeless Trust and Carrefour Supportive Housing.
2: That's very cool. So you guys have a very civically oriented mission, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Tell our audience a little bit about what Verde Community does for those who have EBT, because I think that's really worth noting.
4: Yeah, so we started Urban Oasis Project seven years ago uh, after I moved down here and I met a woman named Melissa Contreras. We wanted to just really create a local food movement accessible to everybody. So we started looking around at farmers markets, didn't see enough local produce, and also what was there was very expensive. So eventually, after starting gardens and getting people together to talk about local food, we started a farmers market and as part of that, we accept EBT benefits, food stamps, and we double them at the markets. So folks can come, spend 20 bucks on their EBT card, but they get $40 of Florida-grown fruits and vegetables.
2: Now, you guys have five different locations for the farmers' markets?
4: We're actually up to about eight right now. It keeps changing. We're always adding some and getting new opportunities thrown at us.
2: So let's talk about the ones that are in the city of Miami. Or let's start with in-city of Miami and then work our way outward from there.
4: Sure. So right now going on is the Arsht Center Farmer's Market uh, from 4 to 8 every Monday night. Nice little market right there at the Arsht Center.
2: Okay. I didn't even know about that one. We're going to have to tweet that one
4: out so everybody knows. Nice. Yeah. They've got a real nice uh, farm-to-table dinner that happens every week with it. Uh, we've got a booth. There's a bunch of other great vendors. Chia Balls sells these great chia parfait and Chia Treats, and some other produce vendors, and Babe Froman does smoked meats and really great stuff there.
2: That's awesome. So there's the the, uh, every Monday night from 4 to 8 p.m. When did you guys start that one?
4: Uh, Well, we don't actually run that market. We just have a booth at it, but it started Ah. last year, um, about this time last year.
2: Okay. And uh, are you guys on Twitter, by the way? We... Not really. Not really. Okay. <laughs> I have an
4: account, but it's not very active. <laughs> uh, no, we, we, fine. We, we do a lot on Facebook, so we have a really active Facebook page. We have a group and a nonprofit page. So we post a newsletter every Friday, letting people know what new things are coming into season, what new things are going to be at the farmer's market, all kinds of special events that are coming up. We have things a lot of different events especially at this time of the year like november 14th right before the book fair starts we're having our farm open house so that's next saturday all day long we're doing free farm tours you can come to the farm really check it out uh it's really beautiful spot down there in homestead right on your way to the keys for anyone driving down to the keys
2: That's awesome. And then you guys also go to Legion's Park, right? Yeah, we've been running
4: that market for about five years now. That's kind of our flagship market, I would say. It's our biggest one. We have about 30 to 40 vendors every Saturday from 9 to 2. Rain or shine, we're always out there. Okay, and then uh, you guys go to Fort Lauderdale as well, right? We do have one location in Fort Lauderdale. We go to the Las Olas Farmers Market on Sundays from 9 to 3. Um, we have a small new market in Hialeah at Amelia Earhart farm um, farm village so a really beautiful tree shaded area animals nearby what day is that one that's on Sundays from 11 until four alrighty and then uh, you're also at tropical park yeah that's our other really big one um, our one of my market managers, Carl Templer, runs Tropical Park Farmer's Market. It's really community-created market. So just a bunch of folks came together, really wanted to see this happen. Did it in South Miami for a while, moved a couple times. We've been at Tropical Park for three years now. And it's a great spot with 30 different vendors, real wide variety of different things. All righty. I mean, you guys are really
2: out there hustling, making sure that you hit all these different farmer's markets. It sounds like you're at one every single day practically.
4: Uh, mostly on the weekends. Um, we just started doing once a month and Fridays in Overtown uh, as part of the Folklife Fridays. Uh, we were really happy to have an event to come back to in Overtown because the biggest part of our mission is to really tackle food deserts and to make food accessible to a lot of people that really don't have great access, especially to fresh and especially to locally grown food. So being in Overtown, being in areas like Liberty City has always been a big part of our mission where, you know, it's so much easier to find a convenience store, find cigarettes and alcohol than it is to find any sort of fresh produce. So we just started going to the Folklife Fridays, Overtown from 10 until 2. It's a really fun event. There's always music, a bunch of different people selling food. We bring a bunch of vegetables and just have a great time meeting people out there and connecting them with uh, you know different things that they haven't seen like today i brought you some new things from our farm like a ghost pickle so it looks kind of like a cucumber but it's kind that's, of a real that's light this yellow, yellow thing right yeah that's actually a cucumber but it's a ghost pickle yeah why is it a ghost pickle <laughs> well most of the time they actually are pure white on the outside i oh, think okay. we get so much light here in miami that uh, they grew pretty yellow. Uh, might have something to do with kind of their very unique soil. You know, a lot of plants, they'll change how they look depending on the soil that you have. True, true. Uh,
2: maybe it's very alkaline. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else do you have here? Because uh, our audience obviously cannot see these wonderful fresh veggies, but you brought quite a few of them.
4: Yeah, we got some really nice scallions. Um, those are coming in in abundance from our farm.
2: Yeah, yeah, nice green onions. This has been real
4: popular. Last night we had a wonderful event at the Vagabond Hotel called uh, Tacos and Tequila. So it was a Taco and Tequila Showdown. Had twelve of the top chefs. And it was all a fundraiser for Urban Oasis Project and our EBT doubling program. So there was almost two hundred people out there. So we were sampling out the scallions, also nopales, cactus leaves, real lemony flavor, really nice. Cubanelle peppers we also have here and jalapeno peppers. Uh, our season here in Miami is just getting started. Uh, we have a CSA program where folks sign up to be part of the farm for the year. So you get 20 weeks of a box of vegetables prepared for you from the farm. Every week it comes to you, pick it up at any of the markets, or you can pick it up at the farm itself. And you save money because you kind of committed for the season. It really helps us make the investments to be able to start the season. So uh, how much does it cost to participate in the
2: CSA program? That means you get, uh, what, like a box of fresh veggies every week delivered? Yeah, CSA stands
4: for Community Supported Agriculture. So it um, brings the risk of growing everything and spreads it out from just the farm owner to the whole community that wants to be fed from a local farm. So that's kind of the idea behind a CSA. We made a bunch of different options this year. Um, So you can get a full share or you can get a half share. Half share is really good for one or two people who eat occasionally at home. Full share is great if you're juicing or if you really like to cook a lot, Um, like to use a lot of vegetables every week. Um, And then you can also do a trial. You can do a half season for 10 weeks or you can sign up for the whole season for 20 weeks. So it can run anywhere from a low end of $215 up to a high end of the full season, full share for $625. And the full season,
2: I mean, ba- basically, like that's just up front, right? You don't pay installments, you pay uh, the whole thing? or It's
4: uh, two installments, yeah. You pay half of it right up front, and then by the end of this year, you have to pay up the other half to ensure your vegetables that are going to start on November 21st and run all the way up until April 2nd.
2: Gotcha. So you get almost six months worth i guess really
4: uh 20 weeks
2: 20 weeks that's awesome well i'll tell you what we're gonna take a really short break and we'll be right back this is the only in miami show
1: Her body's on point and her walk is mean. The crowd parts like the sea. They can look but a touch, they can only dream. dream. He loves a challenge, so he licks his lips. He's inspired by her arrogance. His first words make her body tense. She can't leap because she feels his strength. Now she can't help but listen. But she's down to her last defenses. She says, why you being so persistent? He says, I speak what I want to existence. She never heard a man talk like this. Never seen somebody so confident. Driven to the point of death. Guess what he wants, even if it means no rest. Death. With the sweetest taste. He left a heart with a warm embrace. He took a mind to another place, and the effects lasted for days. No ordinary love story exists that could illustrate how the spark was lit. And why his love gave a spirit a lift. A puzzle piece just perfectly fits. But with the sunshine came the rain, pouring down great clouds of pain. Everything started to change. After that, he was never the same. So Step on to the very end. With the power within all the fish blew away with the wind, she was stronger than she'd ever been.
2: Oh, welcome back this is the only in miami show and i'm your host grant stern you can find me on twitter at grant stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co itunes podcast soundcloud and a whole lot more check it out at onlyinmiami.co and we're back live with art friedlich he is the the, the president of the Urban Oasis Project, Art, thanks for joining us on the program today.
4: Absolutely. Thanks for having me here.
2: So you said that there's a program that you guys are running that helps lower-income families build gardens so they can supply their own fresh produce. Yeah. Tell um, us about that.
4: Such a big part of the reason that we do this is for that personal and that public health. And to me, like food is such an intimate Thing. It's, you know, what we put into our bodies and we've become so disconnected uh, in our culture from where our food comes from, how to grow it, how to, you know, take care of ourselves with our food, you know, and also even how to prepare. Uh, well, I mean, obviously produce. it doesn't
2: it doesn't make sense for every single person. Some people live in apartments. Some people leave live busy lives. But for many people, it could be very beneficial to have their own gardens, right? yeah. I
4: mean, you look at you know research on the therapeutic value of gardens, and people just really do much better when they have some hand in growing their own food. So we met someone who really wanted a garden. He was working a minimum wage job, but trying to support his family. And you know, his minimum wage job was selling organic foods to people, but he couldn't afford to feed his family on that same food. And he well, really isn't saw that the a symptom of, of what's
2: it. really messed up in our country right now? That you have people. Who are selling things they can't themselves afford?
4: Absolutely, yeah. So we met his manager. We set up a thing. We went out there, built a garden with him and his daughter. Um, We supplied all the materials. And we realized immediately, this is great. We need to do more of this. So that transformed the organization, really uh, helped us get a lot of volunteers. How long ago was that? uh, We started that six years ago. It was one of the first things we did.
2: So how many gardens have you guys helped build in six years? It's a long time.
4: Yeah, since then we've built about over 100 different gardens. Um, it's mostly been self-funded. Um, and so we've built 100 different gardens with different people, mostly around Liberty City, Opalaka. We've also worked with different homeless shelters and transitional housing communities. Um, and it's just been really rewarding. We just give people a little four-foot by eight-foot garden. It's pretty much all been funded by the volunteers that actually come out and do the work themselves uh, we haven't ever really gotten a real grant fund to do this but it's always been just a core of what we do and it's part of what people are supporting when they shop with us at farmers markets um, that they're supporting the organization so that we can do that kind of educational work we can continue to put together workshops and just bring t- people together around these ideas of local food and sustainability
2: Well, there was a recent article in the New York Times, and it notes that even General Mills, the giant food conglomerate, is dropping all artificial colors and flavors. Uh, Purdue, Tyson, and Foster Farms are limiting the use of antibiotics in chicken. Kraft is dropping artificial dyes from its macaroni and cheese. You'd mentioned that there's, there's a few pillars of why this local food movement is so important. It seems like some of the bigger companies are starting to get it, but what are these Three big reasons why everybody should be concerned about what they're putting in their body.
4: Yeah, for me, Urban Oasis Project, we really have three different goals that we're working towards at the same time. So the first one is the environmental sustainability, supporting small local farms that can really take responsibility for the environment and make that a priority.
2: The second one?
4: The second one is also the economics, uh, giving people, supporting local farms, giving them the money and the local economy so that we can have more jobs. And the third one is the public and the personal health. So really giving people the tools and the access that they need so that they can make the best choices for their own personal health. Now,
2: uh, for our audience who's interested, and I'm sure there's a few people in Homestead who are listening, um, are you guys open every day uh, down in Homestead? Do you guys sell regularly in Homestead, or do you only mostly sell through the farmer's market and the CSA Program?
4: We've got a lot of options now. Uh, the Verde, Verde Community Farm and Market. Uh, the market is open on Tuesday until Saturday from okay. 11 until 3. So we're just doing a lunch serving right now. Uh, you can buy produce from the farm and also from other farms. It's also a full commercial kitchen. So we have all these micro entrepreneurs that are renting space in the kitchen. And Able to sell them all kinds of places, but they also sell them in our little market there.
2: Okay, so from Tuesday through Thursday uh, through Saturday, from eleven a.m. to three p.m. Yeah, uh, you guys can go to one twenty six ninety Southwest two hundred eightieth Street Homestead, and that is www.verdefarmandmarket.com. Again, it's one twenty six ninety Southwest two hundred eightieth Street Homestead, Florida, Verde Farm and Market. Dot com, And then for the Urban Oasis Project, um, you can check that out at urbanoasisproject.org. And where should they go for the CSA? Is that also on the main website, the first one I just said?
4: Yeah, it's linked from either website, but definitely right. the Verde Farm and Market has the more in-depth and the actual sign-up for the CSA. Uh, So you can check out all the different options. You can see some of the newsletters that members get. They give recipes to teach about all the weird and new things. You know, we mostly have pretty standard vegetables, but you also see different varieties that you may not be familiar with. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's cool. That's cool. So uh, one more time, if you're interested in learning more, uh, check out Verde, V-E-R-D-E, farmandmarket.com. And they're open in Homestead, Tuesday through Saturday, if you want to grab a bite. You guys have the kitchen. You guys are serving lunch, right? And you're also selling the produce. And they've got farmer's markets all over town. There's Legion Park, uh, Tropical Park, uh, tonight at the R Center, wrapping up in just a few minutes. And uh, a whole lot more. Art, thank you so much for joining us on the program.
4: Absolutely, Grant. Thanks for having me in. And we're really looking forward to the book fair and really giving everyone in Miami a really nice chance to meet the Verde Community Farm and Market, meet Urban Oasis Project and this really great venue. We'll be right outside of the swamp Thursday night from 5 until 10. We'll have our cafe serving food fresh from the farm, cooked up in our Verde kitchen, and we'll be there Friday, Saturday, and all day Sunday.
2: All righty. Check them out at the Miami Book Fair. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Oh, welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. That's iTunes, Podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we are back with Jose Villar of the Reading Queer Festival. Jose, thank you for joining us on the program tonight.
5: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
2: So tell our audience a little bit about the Reading Queer Festival. It's going to be at the Miami Book Fair. And is it going to run all the way from the 15th through the 22nd?
5: Yeah, we have a series of events, five in total, throughout the entire week. It's actually right. about a week and a half. And it does run the course of the Miami Book Fair.
2: So you guys are like a fair within a fair.
5: Yeah. It's a, it's a festival within a fair. Or a festival within a fair. A okay. festival within a fair within a festival within a fair. It's a very queer affair, if you will.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so explain to our listening audience... Uh, What the difference is between reading queer and not reading queer?
5: Reading queer can be understood in a variety of ways. We're first and foremost a literary organization, and we understand ourselves as a platform. So we are really a space within which Miami's queer community shows up. Um, The way that that works is that we reach out to the community through a variety of initiatives. We have an annual series of workshops that run throughout the year. These workshops are free and open to the public. They're taught by local teachers that we hire for a stipend um, to teach these classes. And they'll range from craft lectures to uh, literary workshops. And collectively, they're known as the Reading Queer Writing Academy. So they're meant as a series of uh, stepping stones towards mastery of a a powerful voice, if you will.
2: Okay. So, I mean, for our audiences to know, you guys aren't just doing this one week out of the year, right?
5: No, no, no. I mean, the Reading Crew Project is really all year long. I mean, we have over, uh, I think last year we had over seven different workshops taught in various venues throughout Miami. Um, each one of the workshops will hold anywhere between 15 and 20 people. Um, all of the workshops are free of charge and all of them are advertised through our website.
2: Okay, and and these are workshops that are aimed at an adult audience that's looking to write.
5: Well, we've done workshops with youth as well. Okay. And we're currently working with other local organizations that work with queer youth to bring these workshops specifically to particular demographics that particularly need it.
2: So what can somebody expect to find at this year's festival?
5: Oh, there's so much. I mean, the first thing is that this Wednesday uh, we're screening uh, Paris is Burning, which is a documentary by Jenny Livingston. And the, this year is the 25th anniversary of the screening of that documentary, which chronicles the ballroom scene in New York in the 1980s. And for those of you who don't know what the ballroom scene is, it's a it's a kind of pageant um, done in a queer spirit where h- what they call houses which are groups of queer kids headed by a mother, one single queer kid. So these are alternative family structures for kids who have been thrown out, who don't have families. Um, And they compete in different categories, the most notorious of which is Vogue, which Madonna sensationalized in the 1980s. Um, We're going to have a mini ball that will follow the poetry reading, which kind of headlines the festival. And that'll happen on the 18th on um, Wednesday the 18th and it's called Paris is Still Burning.
2: Okay. At what time is that at
5: That will be at 6 p.m. Okay. And at that's at the Olympia Theater.
2: Right. I was going to get at that that it's not all happening inside the boundaries of Miami Dade uh, Wolfson campus, right?
5: No. So there will be let me see 1 2 th- there'll be 3 of them that will happen within the Wolfson campus. Mm-hmm. Um but there will be this these two Paris is burning, screening happening this Wednesday at O Cinema at 9 o'clock. And then Paris is still burning on the 18th at Olympia Theater.
2: Okay. That's good to know. Because I was looking at it and I'm like, wait a second, there's something this week.
5: Yeah. No, there's this, this is what kicks off the festival is this week. And mm-hmm. the documentary is really legendary and historical. Um, in the sense that it, it chronicles one of the first queer counter, uh, countercultures. Um, that has had a lot of influence to this day. I mean, the ballroom scene is very much alive and well. There's a bustling ballroom scene actually in South Florida. And it's with members of that scene that we've worked to program the second part of the poetry reading that will be happening on the 18th. And that poetry reading will be with David Thomas Martinez, the author of Hustle, Don Lundy Martin, Justin Philip Reed, and Dennis Smith.
2: Wow, it's a great audience. I mean, a great lineup, excuse me. (laughs) Hopefully it has a great audience. So, um, okay, the first event is Wednesday, November 11th at 9 p.m. at O Cinema. That's in Wynwood. Uh, You can get your tickets through readingqueer.org. Then Paris is still burning. We'll kick off the full festival in conjunction with the book fair. And then you have uh, Queer Verses Celebrating the Lammies. Explain that one. And that's on Sunday, November 2nd.
5: So the Lammies have been uh, a literary award. It's awarded by Lambda. Um, and they've celebrated the best queer books, the best LGBTQIAA books of every year for the last 27 years. And so we gathered up four either finalists or winners of this prize to read together and, and sort of discuss the experience of, of being part of the legacy of the Lammies.
2: And then you've got the... The poetry reading, which is Sunday, November 22nd, right, at noon?
5: Well, there, there'll be another reading, actually. Oh, Multiple identities, okay. one readership. Um, and that'll be happening that ah, same day. Okay. And so these are consecutive. They're kind of panel readings that happen within the book fair. Gotcha. Um, and it's a it's a kind of full circle for us because we began Reading Queer with a panel at the book fair. Ah, years okay. Ago. So, and it was actually... Um, thematically related to the second reading, which is called Multiple Identities, One Readership. And that will be happening at 12 on the same day.
2: Right. And then the final event, uh, or is this the final event? I'm not sure. It says uh, Queer Quinceanera.
5: Yeah, it's a Queer Quinceanera, and and that's kind of the capstone to the festival. Yes, okay. And so we kind of go out with a party and a bang. Um, I always wanted to have a quinceanera, so it's, it's, it's kind of a... Um, A dream come true for me. There you go. But if you know, if you never got to have a quinceanera, this is the place to go. It'll be a quinceanera hosted by two of Miami's raunchiest and most legendary drag queens, Jalasi and Carla. They do like a chonga drag uh, (laughs) kind of number. It'll Um, be a blowout. Yeah, no, 100%. And that'll be at The Swamp.
2: Right. That's 5 p.m. at The Swamp, which is a, a section of the Miami Book Fair International. It's dedicated to local artists and offerings. And just for everybody who's out there, the book fair does run from the 15th through the 22nd of November. That's coming up later this month. Jose, thank you very much for joining us on the program. And our audience can find you at readingqueer.org. Do you have a Twitter account as well?
5: Uh, Our handle should be at readingqueer. At
2: readingqueer on Twitter. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, Podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back with Adam Levine, the author of Swiped. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the program.
6: Grant, thanks for inviting me.
2: My pleasure. So tell our audience a little bit about Swiped. Protecting Yourself from Scammers in the Digital Age.
6: Well, the book is really based on the theory that everything that we've learned about identity theft has to be relearned, because what we've learned is you you have to figure out a way to prevent it. And while that would be great news, in light of the fact that millions upon millions of people have become victims of identity theft and victims of breaches, and in fact breaches have become the third certainty in life, (laughs) <laughs> that instead of just thinking about prevention, we have to focus on what I call the three M's, which is you need to minimize your risk of exposure. But if you're on the wrong database at the wrong moment and the wrong person gains unauthorized access, you've got a real problem. And that's why you have to focus on the other two M's, which is monitor. There are a variety of ways to do it and manage the damage.
2: So this, this is as much for consumers as it is for businesses. I think it sounds like it applies to both. But what do you? Oh, focus it does. On it does, and, and
6: and we are all in harm's way. We are all in the crosshairs, and you know there. Oh, there you are don't have to tell of, me. My
2: yeah. fiance had her her credit card or her debit card run for six hundred dollars at the ATM today and reversed. <laughs> Just today. Yep.
6: Well, yep. Yeah, these. I mean, you know, every day you hear another story, and every week or more frequently you hear about another breach. I mean, put this in perspective: over one. Billion files, consumer files, have been exposed to the wrong people in the past few years. Uh, So that means we are all potentially victims of multiple forms of identity theft, and certainly, if not, will be.
2: Well, one of the most pernicious forms of identity theft that I've seen out there, that is also one of the fastest growing, is IRS tax fraud where people file fraudulent tax returns in other people's names. How does somebody protect themselves from this?
6: Yeah, this happens, actually, and and there, there are three versions of this. The first is you attempt to file a return and you're blocked because you're told that someone filed a tax return using your Social Security number. The second is that you're waiting for your refund. It never shows up. Then you find out that it showed up, but for somebody else. And the third <laughs> is that you receive a deficiency notice from the IRS telling you that the amount you thought you owed was woefully under what you really do owe, because a number of people apparently have been working using your Social Security number with their income being reported to you. Wow.
2: That's that's really wild. I mean, what's driving this? Why is this happening so frequently?
6: Well, as an example, with tax-related fraud and Florida has been uh, been plagued by this is that it's, this has become the, organ, the the crime of choice for organized crime and for a number of the cartels. I mean, why would you have guys doing drug deals under street lamps in the middle of the night uh, where they risk arrest and, and injury when you can have people sitting in motels wearing their pajamas with their feet up uh, on the coffee table simply typing in somebody's information uh, into an e-filing for either the IRS or a state taxing authority and making... Billions of dollars. Uh, last year, it's reported that the IRS lost something like six billion dollars to fraudulent refunds.
2: Wow, that's not like losing pocket change in your your couch. That's a lot of money.
6: No, it's an enormous amount of money. They estimate by the by in the next couple of years, the IRS could be out about twenty-one billion. And even as the IRS tightens up. The fraud is moving to state taxing authorities. I mean, one of the midwestern states went from 10 million to 250 million in fraudulent activity in just one year.
2: That's wild. I mean, why is it so easy to take advantage of these uh, these, particularly the tax authorities? Like, why is well, it such a target of opportunity? It sounds like, um, you know. It it sounds like the candy store is open and everybody knows, but but the candy store owner isn't home.
6: Oh, that's for sure. Well, well, the, there's a, there's a few problems. First of all, in order to file a fraudulent tax return, really all you need is a name, a date of birth, a social security number, and then you can doctor up a W two form. And the thieves basically file early, so while most people are you know get their W twos and going through their accountants and doing what they do. The bad guys are getting in there first, and you also have to put this in the context of the fact that just this year since January we've learned of breaches where over one hundred million social security numbers have been stolen, whether it 's anthem premier Care first, Excellus on the healthcare side, the Office of Personal management for the u s government and just numerous other breaches. So you've got all this Social Security information out there, plus all the other information that's out there on the black markets, and people who are all too good at knowing what to do with it.
2: Well, where can we get some reform from the people who are the gatekeepers of their information? Like, how do we as as consumers press for reform?
6: Well, we press for reform through both state and state, and federal agencies through state and federal legislators i mean one of the biggest problems we have in washington congress can not agree on the day of the week and they just recently passed a uh... information sharing act uh... which really wasn't that terrific and that's the best they've done there's no national breach notification law uh... the standards that we need to set uh... are not as robust as they need to be that many businesses either don't care or can't afford it or can't figure out what to do. Uh, So it's a situation where the only way this works is it has to be a collaborative effort between consumers, government, business, and the media. And we have to understand the fact that we are under constant assault, that the Cold War has been replaced by the cyber war, and this is happening at so many levels.
2: So you're going to be at the book fair on Saturday, right?
6: Yeah, the twenty first. Yes, yeah, Saturday the
2: twenty first. Alrighty. It's uh Saturday, November twenty first at ten thirty AM. Uh, that's uh building eight on the third floor, right? Yes, sir. And uh it's it's a panel or is it just is it just you?
6: Well, I think there are a variety of different people, but from what I know this one is just me, but every day is a new adventure so we'll sure. find out as we get closer
2: yeah it's uh, it, it's just simply listed as protect yourself against scams and identity theft so i'm going to tell you what we're going to take a very short break adam stick around we're going to talk after the break and we'll be right back this is the only in miami show Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, Podcasts, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Adam Levine. He is the author of Swiped and one of the co-founders of Credit.com. Adam, thanks for joining us tonight
6: for having me.
2: So tell our audience a little bit about what got you into credit in the first place. You are co-founder of credit.com. Personal finance is probably something very important to you.
6: No, it it always has been. And my interest in it really started when I was quite young, but it really accelerated when I became the director of consumer affairs for the state of New Jersey uh, from 77 to 1982, which is before the floods. And
3: uh,
6: (laughs) I... um, Um, one-third of all the complaints that we handled at that time uh, were credit-related. And, by the way, when I was head of consumer affairs, a good friend of mine, Walter Dartlin, was the consumer advocate for Dade County, Florida, and we worked together on a number of projects.
2: Oh. Well, if you're, you know, investigating fraud, Miami's a great place to start. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
6: unfortunately, yeah. Well, also because, you know, Miami is a gateway Uh, into this country and normally when you have border states or or gateway states uh, you have uh, enormous fraud issues.
2: Yeah no no it's I don't know I mean there's there's fraud issues everywhere let's face it I mean states like Illinois have just as much political corruption as Miami but uh, because we have a slightly better public records law I guess people find out about these things but the the credit theft, the identity theft that's going on down here, it's it's pretty epic.
6: Well, it, it is, and, and if you look at the states that have kind of led over the past few years, you have Arizona, border state, mm-hmm. California, border state, Texas, uh, Florida. So, you know, it, it, it is a problem. Um,
2: like states where a lot of people are moving to. There's a lot of migration. People feel maybe a little bit more transient, I guess.
6: Oh, absolutely! No, it, it, it's an issue. Look, identity theft is an epidemic. It's actually a pandemic. Um, it's worldwide. You know, we hear a lot in this political campaign about uh, building the wall, or as somebody refers to it, the Great Wall of Mexico. But unfortunately, <laughs> you mean what the Great Wall of Trump? About. <laughs> huh?
2: The Great Wall of <laughs> Trump? <laughs> yes.
6: Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. The Trump wall. But <laughs> what we don't hear about, and if you look at the political information, nobody's really talking about the cyber wall. Now, the truth is, it's impossible to build cyber wall because of the connectivity uh, worldwide. That being said, there's not enough uh, focus on what we do about cybersecurity in this country. And cybersecurity is a terrifying situation. I mean, not only all the identity theft situations that we confront, but also the fact that a well-timed, sophisticated attack could bring down the power grid, could bring down the financial grid. You could see serious loss of life uh, based on something like this, and, and, and it's just not receiving the attention it should.
2: Well, you're, you're the second guest to, to, on tonight's show to point out that uh, cyber threats are rapidly eclipsing you know, in-person threats when it comes to safety, theft, and security.
6: Oh, no, absolutely, and the fastest growing crime in the US is identity theft and uh and that's again because in order to commit it uh you don't have to necessarily be anywhere and and in fact a great deal of it is uh, committed by people who are not only not in this country but they are beyond uh, prosecution in this country because either they're in an area that 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 the the government in that area is protecting the cyber thieves or that government's position is whether or not we're protecting them we really can't even begin to deal with it we got enough of our own issues so you know leave us alone and and that's the scary part is that, that identity theft is a crime that that oftentimes just can't be resolved and even if it is resolved even if they arrest the right guys by the time they're arrested they've already sold and resold that information to many other people. So this sort of, it has, a, it, it has a life of its own.
2: It does. So tell our audience, Adam, a little bit about how you were involved in the creation of credit.com. I think a lot of people know about credit.com.
6: Yeah, we, we started, actually, we're one of the oldest living dot coms. And uh, uh, we, we, we created it back in 1994. And in fact, we're able to get the domain by swapping a hard drive for it.
2: Oh, that sounds like a good deal,
6: uh, yeah so that's how <laughs> far back we go and that's awesome it was It was originally started to be it was based on a book and then an infomercial, except that into the filming of the infomercial, it became clear that expenses were rising so rapidly and everybody wanted a piece of the action that it almost became economically prohibitive unless you had a huge you know best seller and on top of which credit is a very personal subject. And the most successful infomercials are ones that sound like it's a used car deal. And you really can't mix credit education, credit protection with sounding like a used car salesman. Uh, So as a result, my partner walked in, my business partner, he said to me, there's this new thing, and I think it may work. It's called the Internet. (laughs) And and he said, "We can start marketing products and services on the internet, and, and our, our educational services. We're going to get a wide audience. The great news is, it's 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 a new world. It's a free world. We can get out there and, and ex- get exposure for the company. And that's that's really how we went online in nineteen ninety five, and uh, that's how it all began.
2: That's awesome. I mean, you know, it you have to be at the right place at the right time, and takes a lot of." Uh, you know insight to say well this is the place to be and you guys obviously chose a great domain name (laughs) so what does credit.com do today what does it well it
6: is it's an educator it's an advocate it's a place where you can ask questions and get answers it has enormous content on uh, on credit education and information subjects um it also uh, helps to match consumers with products and services, but those that are appropriate to them, uh, the educational uh, resources are all free. Um, it, it, we were literally the first site that ever offered uh, free uh, credit information and free credit uh, scores, and uh, it was attached to nothing. So you didn't have to give down a credit card, because, you know, the the big rap. On a lot of the sites that were involved in in free credit scores in the past and free reports were the fact that you would have to provide um, information, credit card information, which would then be billed 30 days later unless you stopped it.
2: Oh, the irony that all these credit providers, when people are just looking for information on their credit and to protect their credit identities, are actually collecting their identity information.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well,
6: and, and the important thing about credit is that it pervades Every nook and cranny of your life, uh, even to the point now where in the job evaluation uh, world it's there. Now, Senator Warren and, and some others in Washington introduced legislation, and there are a few states that have it where credit reports cannot be part of the job evaluation uh, process unless it is definitively tied to you're involved in something involving credit or money. Um, but If you think about it, a home, a car, a credit card, uh, student loans, um, job evaluations, insurance premiums. I
2: was just going to say, auto insurance premiums, they're they're factoring that in so that if you have good uh, credit, they assume you're a good driver.
6: (laughs) Which I realize sounds a little bizarre, but apparently they have had studies that correlate uh, credit scores with driving. Uh, now I, I see where credit might make sense if it involves either life insurance or, let's say, fire insurance, because there's always a concern if somebody is under a great deal of pressure because of problems in their lives. They might either do something to themselves, or they might be distracted, uh, you know, when they uh, when they're doing something, or they might, you know, create a problem involving a building or something, but. Uh, and I guess one argument might be that if you are diverted over credit issues, you might not be focusing on driving, and therefore it might, uh, it might impact your ability to focus. I'm not sure, but it has played a role in the insurance industry for years now.
2: Yeah, yeah, quite, quite a few years. I mean, believe me, I could talk about the credit all night long. Uh, being in the mortgage business for 12 years, we deal with personal finance and personal credit on a daily basis. At our wonderful sponsor, Morningside Mortgage. So,
6: and and you know the important thing about credit again is that you need to know where you stand before you need it. That long before you in, need it, not a day before it. you
2: need it, no. but but months because it takes months to to impact your credit report. If you want to no, make changes, no, that's
6: correct. And you know you have to keep the five things in mind, which is timeliness of payment, um, how much credit that's available, are you actually using? Because if you use too much, that that makes creditors very nervous.
2: Well, it's, it's the, the, the amount yeah. rela- related to the amount of available credit. So if you use less than a third of your available credit, then creditors appreciate you know that with your higher score. You get a you know, better score. But if you're using more than 50% of your available credit on any credit card, like any trade line, then it dings your score.
6: Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And then that's why people have to pay attention to it. That's why I always tell people it's important, and this is one of the three M's, monitoring, is you need to check your accounts on a daily basis or sign up for transactional monitoring alerts, which will notify you anytime there's activity in your account, because you have to keep your eye on how much credit you're using, because, again, the more credit you use, you could, you could have credit score issues, but more importantly, if your credit score takes a sudden drop, it might be an indication of either you're using too much credit or that you're a victim of identity theft, and you need to know that as fast as possible.
2: So, Adam, tell our audience where they can find out a little bit more about you online and where they can find you on Twitter.
6: Great. Well, um, you can come to credit.com. You can come to IDT911.com, which is our identity theft company. You can go to adamleven.com, uh, or you can go to adam-k-levin underscore underscore uh, on Twitter.
2: All righty. So that's idt911.com. Of course, credit.com. And adam-k-levin underscore underscore on Twitter. And at the book fair, the Miami International Book Fair, which is going to be running from November 15th through the 22nd at Miami-Dade's downtown Wolfson campus, Uh, You can meet Adam in person Saturday, November 21st at 1030 a.m. in room 8302. That's building 8, third floor of the Miami-Dade downtown Wolfson campus. It's 300 Northeast 2nd Avenue. And Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight.
6: Hey, listen again, thank you for having me.
2: And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami Miami show. So Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, Podcasts, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live in studio with MJ. (laughs) Uh, uh, Jessica uh, Fiev is an author. She is a... Actually, are you a Haitian American? Are you? Are you? Haitian- I am a Haitian
7: American. A- yes.
2: Haitian American author, and she will be at the Miami Book Fair International this November 15th through the 22nd. You're not going to be there the whole time. What day are you going to be at the book fair?
7: Well, I have two events related to my book on the 21st, and on the 22nd, I'll be directing two panels with other authors.
2: So tell our audience a little bit about your story, MJ.
7: Well. The book is titled A Sky, the Color of Chaos, and it chronicles my childhood during the what I call the President-Priest era, um, the government of jean bertrand Aristide. Okay. So um, it covers a time of nightly shootings, home invasions, robberies, the burning of former regime members. The story goes from when I was eight until I was 18. But really, the political aspect of the book is the background for a more personal story about growing up with my father, who was kind of a volatile man, and the relationship is had with me and with the rest of the family.
2: Well, I mean, our audience would like to know about your personal story, too, because you started writing at a very young age.
7: Right. Um, I was in middle school when I started writing, and I got a lot of support from teachers and family members. And when I was 16, I published my first novel in Haiti. I've always been attracted to horror stories just because um, horror stories take you away a little from your own reality and the, the, the own... Your own horror, if I can say.
2: Sure. Your own personal horror fades away. and Right. It, it helps you suspend the disbelief. You step into this other world.
7: Exactly. So I published my first book at 16, and I never stopped writing. Um, my Most of my books are in French, and they, they've been published in the Caribbean. Sky the Color of Chaos is my first book in English.
2: Oh, okay. So, I mean, you started writing when you are 16, and you're now...
7: I'm, thirty four. Okay, okay. Thirty
2: four. Well, hey, you know, I mean, you've been doing it for, for, for a while. Right. Mastering your craft. Uh, what en- what encouraged you to cross over, a- and start writing in English?
7: Uh, well, I moved here.
2: Okay. When did you move here?
7: <laughs> I-, I was twenty one okay. when I decided to leave Haiti and come here. Um, I wasn't too happy in Haiti because of everything that was going on, but also I had studied med school in Haiti and I had no time really to write and to to read anything other than whatever was related to my class load. And I was looking for another career. I wanted to help children with disabilities. So when I came here, I got a bachelor's degree in um, exceptional student education.
2: Ah, from which institution?
7: From Berry University ah, okay. in Miami Shores.
2: Gotcha. Oh, that's very cool. So you've been in Miami for 13 years now. Yeah. How would you compare what happens here to what happened back in Haiti? I mean, there's there's certainly a few similarities. There's some major differences. But let's talk about some of the interesting similarities that maybe somebody who hasn't lived in both places might not appreciate.
7: Well, um, to begin with, in some areas of Miami, I feel like I'm in Haiti. If I go to Little Haiti, for instance, uh, um, in the streets, people are speaking Creole. You can go to a restaurant and have some grill, or if it's Sunday morning, you'll get your jumu soup for sure. Yeah. So um, it's easy to connect with the homeland while being here. Very easy. Right. And, of course, the weather, very hot here, very hot in Haiti. Oh, sure. Um, So, yeah, it's just like home.
2: But what are some of the pleasant differences, some of the things that you don't miss about back home?
7: Well, for sure, I don't miss the insecurity that we have over there. Um, Of course, there's violence here. Uh, There there are robberies, there's crime. But I feel relatively safe walking my dog at 9, at night, yeah. But in Haiti, as soon as it's dark, you better be inside, unless, of course, you know you're well accompanied. But as a woman, I would never be in the street after dark.
2: Why is that? What what happens after dark in Haiti?
7: Well, um, there are there's a lot of gang activities in Haiti, um, and also just you know. Lots of thieves and a lot of robberies, attacks in the streets. And, you know, sometimes you go and it's peaceful, it's quiet, and then the next month you return and it's a completely different atmosphere. It's really unpredictable in terms of how much crime there is and how much stability you can expect.
2: So tell us a little bit about the book that you just released, a little bit more. Like, is there a particular incident uh, from your childhood that is emblematic of the condition that you experienced? Is there one incident that you wrote about in the book above others that draws the reader in and and gives them that experience?
7: Right. In the very first chapter, I described one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. I was... um, playing with my Barbie dolls on the balcony of my house when suddenly there was this group of people and they were dragging a man behind them and um, they ended up burning the man right there in front of the house and as a kid you know you're looking at the scene this man being killed being burned alive and it's something I never forgot the book starts, um, the Duvalier era is gone, and now people are trying to get revenge against the Makouts. They were the private militia. The Tonton Makut. Yes.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, for, for those who aren't familiar with, with Haitian history, uh, there was Papa Doc Duvalier, right. who was a strong man, and then his son ba- Baby Doc. Yes. And um, he just passed away a couple of years ago, right? Yes. Very recently. He went
7: back to Haiti and died there.
2: Yes, yes. I mean, it's, it's actually amazing that they allowed him back in the country. Right. They were, He was exiled to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was the vote that brought in Jean-Baptiste Aristide. Right, Jean-Baptiste. jean oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> My apologies. So. Right.
7: But even before Aristide um, came into power, we had we had several other presidents... Uh, a temporary president president. Of the week, actually, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, and ne-
2: none of them was Wyclef Shawnee. <laughs> no.
7: <laughs> so at what point they were hunting down the Tonton Macoutes, trying to get revenge, um, and this guy was supposedly one of them that they burned um, in front of my house.
2: Gotcha. I mean, for those who have not followed Haiti, I would say the Tonton Makout, they would be like uh, like the Stasi. Right, um, or the k g b in Russia, I mean, they were the secret police
7: they were, and they 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 committed the most outrageous uh, unspeakable crimes
2: and then suffered outrageous, unspeakable right. revenge right so so you didn't really have to imagine too much to write the horror part,
7: <laughs> exactly, yeah, I've seen quite a few things, um and growing up in Haiti, you know you see those things and they become what we say, we call in French monnaie courante, like everyday happenings, so that you don't realize how unusual they really are until you move to the United States at twenty one and you tell people your stories and they look at you like you you come from another planet.
2: Wait, what's that that phrase again? Which one? The the, the phrase the everyday happenings.
7: Ah, uh, monnaie courante.
2: Yes. Yes. That's why we call them only in Miami happenings. (laughs) (laughs) We save that for things that only happen here. So (laughs) it inspired the show for sure, right? (laughs) So, um, are you writing full time? Uh, Is that I
7: wish, I wish, but no, no. no. I I actually work as a court interpreter downtown Miami. Um. As a Haitian Creole interpreter, and I also teach writing classes at Miami Dade. So uh. I have a pretty busy schedule, and whenever I get a chance to, I, I do some writing.
2: So, where do you teach these writing classes at Miami Dade? Because some of our audience may want to attend.
7: <laughs> well, um, this semester I'm only on North Campus, but studying next semester I'll be on North Campus and also um, at Wilson.
2: Are you gonna, are, do you teach adjunct, like for students? Are you teaching? Yes, okay. I'm
7: adjuncting, yes. Okay, okay, so. So it depends. Next semester, I'm only teaching composition. So it's um, basic writing, but sometimes I, I teach creative writing, sometimes I teach literature, so it really varies.
2: Okay, well, tell our audience a little bit about some of these Creole language books, because uh, are they in Creole or in French? They are in French. Okay, they are in French, not right. Creole. Um, Tell, tell our audience a little bit about your first book, the one that that launched your literary career.
7: Okay, well, it's called "The Fire of Revenge," and it's the the it's really looking at it now. You know, I was sixteen. It's a pretty simple story in terms of plot. Your traditional horror story, a haunted house story. A family who moves to a remote area and the house is hunted and it's about finding out what happened to the previous tenants of the house
2: okay (laughs) so hey you know the classics are still classic haunted houses are something that actually uh sprung up during the great depression in the united states because of the real estate crash and all the abandoned homes
7: (laughs) i guess i'm learning something new yeah
2: believe me people in miami can relate to haunted houses (laughs) (laughs) So uh, then where did you move on from there? Because you've written nine novels now.
7: Right. So um, that first book was... um, At at that point, I read mostly European stories because Mm. the presses were not too too sophisticated in Haiti. So books by Haitian writers were difficult to find. So I read mostly books from France or American books translated into French. So it's really obvious when reading the book that I've been influenced by um, American storytellers. And even my descriptions sometimes are a little bit removed from the reality of um, Gentiles. Then I moved on to my second novel called The Beast and this one is really into um, the lore in Haiti of the werewolves that are not the traditional werewolves that we have in the U.S. but um, different creatures that can basically share, shed their skins and um, become any type of animal. So you can have, uh, they're called lugaou in French, well, in, in Creole too. And you can have people transforming into dogs or into um, roosters. So I really use that aspect of our cultural um, Tradition of storytelling to come up with the plot for the beast.
2: Okay, so so you moved from more Eurocentric to to more New World centric writing, right? Just from the first book to the second,
7: right? And it um, as I moved further um, into my career, I realized now that there was, you know, you could see my my interest in nonfiction because there there's always that background. Um, In the background, there's always real facts. There's always that political aspect of Haiti um, in the fictional books that I write.
2: Well, the best fiction contains a lot of elements of fact to make it believable. Right. Right?
7: Right. So yeah, that's what was happening. I was definitely um, getting my inspiration from the violence and the corruption in Haiti.
2: Yes, violence and corruption, something we don't know anything about in Miami whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, you know, I mean, it's it's one of those things, like, uh, I mean, Miami has, I think, the largest Haitian population outside of Haiti, right?
7: Right, yes.
2: And then maybe New York would be yeah, second.
7: Th- that's what I was going to say, and then I think number three is Boston. Yeah? I-, I believe so. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure.
2: Okay. <laughs> Um, you know, but it's, I mean, it's a large expat community. I think it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a a third language. I mean, obviously everything in Miami-Dade County, it's not just written in English and Spanish, but it's also written in Creole. Right. But for non-Creole speakers, it can seem very opaque, very remote because, um, there's not a lot of second language French speakers really Mm -hmm. anywhere in the United States. So, um... I mean, how do people that are interested in this culture gain more entry? Like, how do, how does somebody that wants to find out more about Creole culture in Miami, like, find out more without learning the language necessarily?
7: Well, there's a little Haiti cultural center mm-hmm. in Little Haiti. That's they, on
2: 59th Street and Northeast 2nd Avenue?
7: Yes. They host Haitian-related events pretty often. Actually, once a month, they have Big Night in Little Haiti, Mm -hmm. and they feature artists from Haiti. There's also a bookstore called Librerie Mapu, also in Little Haiti, that features books not only in Haitian, Creole, and French, but also in English for those interested in learning a little bit more about our writers and, well, what they write about.
2: Sure, sure. So you're going to be actually at four different events, right? right.
7: yes. Maybe a little, maybe more. <laughs> maybe
2: more, but we've got four in the list, so let's talk about these. Land of Upheaval, a, j- a Literary Journey Through Haiti's Modern History. That sounds like that's more or less about your book. Like that's part, your book is part of that.
7: Right, my book is part of that. So we're going to cover uh, modern history. Um, we're going to go from... Papadoc Duvalier with Fabienne Sylvia Josephat, who, who has a book um, on that topic coming out at the beginning of 2016. Then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Aristide era with my book. Then we're going to go into the time of the earthquake with writer Katia Diulis, who has a book um, called Drifting, who talks a little bit about um, all those people who had. were forced to leave Haiti and um, come to the US after the earthquake. And um, writer Hector Duarte Jr. is the one who's going to man the panel.
2: All right, he's going to moderate the panel. So that's Land of Upheaval, a literary journey through Haiti's modern history. It's Saturday, November 21st at 1230 p.m. All of these events are part of the Miami Book Fair International. They will be at downtown's Miami-Dade College, Wolfson Campus. Then the next one is The World Over, Memoirs of Place, Saturday, November 21st at 3 p.m.
7: Right. So I'm going to be with writers from different backgrounds. Maggie Mutsuki, Market is one of them, Nikki Mutsuki, and Suki Kim. So we're going to talk about uh, Place. Uh, I'm going to talk about Haiti and its impact on me, and I guess they'll talk about their own childhoods.
2: Then we have expats, Haitian women poets in exile, a trilingual reading in English, French, and Haitian Creole.
7: Yes. This one I'm moderating, so I'm not reading. I'm going to be asking questions and introducing the writers.
2: You'll be sitting in my chair. (laughs)
7: Yes.
2: (laughs) Get ready. It ain't easy as it looks. (laughs) Uh, That's Sunday, November 22nd at 12.30 p.m. And that's at the Miami Book Fair International. Then your final event is going to be on Sunday, November 22nd at 4.30 p.m. Sunday Salon with Orange Island Art Foundation. Tell us a little bit about that. Um,
7: So it's going to be three of us, writers Jim Tabord and Cecilia Fernandez um, and myself. We've all been published by the indie press Bidding Windward. So we are going to read from our books and um, take questions and talk about the experience of being um, embraced by an independent press.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, it's it's a lot of books. There's nine books. This is your first one in English. It's called?
7: A Sky the Color of Chaos.
2: A Sky the Color of Chaos. And you also have a children's book that's published in English, right?
7: Yes, well, it's trilingual English. French and Haitian Creole is called I am riding and um, it's aimed at kids I guess um, I, I, I would say five and up it's, it's, a, it's about my experience riding a bike for the first time
2: okay <laughs> hey you know you got to diversify that's, right. <laughs> that's the new economy. <laughs> MJ, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Do you have a website that people can find out more?
7: I do. It's um, thewhimsicalproject.com.
2: Thewhimsicalproject.com. Are you on Twitter or Instagram?
7: I am also on Twitter. Um, on Twitter, it's MJ um, underscore Fiev.
2: MJ underscore F I E V R E. Yes. Yeah. I'm also on Facebook. All righty. So definitely find out more at thewhimsicalproject.com. Yes. And MJ, thank you so much for joining us on the program. That is basically all the time we have tonight. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And I'd like to also thank Leonard Pitts for calling in, uh, Adam Levin, uh, Jose Villar, um, Art Freelander, and everybody who made this show wonderful. We'll be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show.